Hi, I'm Mark. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Hi, I'm also Chris. And this week, we have two amazing guests. Hi, I'm Cynthia. Hi, I'm Saranda. And this is Virtual Hallway, the Community College Teachers Podcast. This week, we're discussing the experience of Black first-generation students. Navigating college can be a challenge for any new student, but those challenges are greater for students when they're first generation, which our college defines as students who are the first in their families to attend a college or university. More broadly, a first-gen student is a student whose parents have not received a four-year degree from a college or university in the United States. The Black first-gen experience in particular involves complicated challenges, inequities, but also opportunities. So. Thank you so much for being here with us, Cynthia and Saranda. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Uh, sure. Um, again, this is uh, Cynthia. So a little bit about my um, background. Um, I've worked in higher education for a little bit over 20 years. I started off um, working in um, university outreach and recruitment and then uh, worked in K-12 through for about three and a half years before I transitioned um, over to the community college. And I've worked, I worked at a number of uh, community colleges and then eventually um, became the program coordinator for the first year experience program at El Camino College, which is where I work now. And I oversee uh, all first year programming as well as the, our undocumented um, initiatives and then mo most recently, our first-gen initiatives on campus. And Saranda, so for me, I've been in higher education for almost 10 years now. Um, I've been at Elko for six years as a counseling faculty. And prior to that, I was an admission counselor at Loyola Marymount University. Um, and other things that I've done before, I also was a... Um, a grant writer and resource developer for a nonprofit charter high school in Lenox. And I worked in sales and management before that. Um, some of the things in my professional background, I'm getting my doctorate in educational leadership at Cal State Long Beach. I am involved with helping to lead our first gen initiative here on campus. And um, yes, that. What are some of the key elements of the Black first-generation experience in general? How is the Black first-generation experience different from other FG groups? So I also identify as a Black first-gen student or graduate. And some things that make that experience different is definitely in the realm of like those intersecting identities. So you are black, of course, which is something that's visible. And then you have this first gen identity, which is invisible in some ways. And for many students, you don't necessarily know your first gen until really someone tells you. So I, during my undergraduate experience, I, that wasn't a word that we necessarily use like first gen. So I didn't really learn about first gen until I was getting my master's degree. Um, but with that, some of the experiences that you have, of course, are going to be similar in some ways to the broader first gen population. So, you know, having imposter syndrome, navigating the hidden curriculum, but that's also compounded with race, racism, and other like underlying um, complexities there. 
Um, so in terms of, I think some of the key elements of the Black First Gen experience that make their experience different from the other first gen groups that I work with is that there's a whole nother layer that Black first gen students have to really maneuver. Um, and that is racism. Um, we cannot, um, you know, underscore the fact that um, institutional racism, um, you know, and racism itself still exist in many of the spaces that Black first-gen students have to navigate. Um, you know, we still see reports in K through 12 that show a disproportionate amount of uh, Black students that are suspended um, in higher numbers than their white counterparts. Um, you know, we are only now really as a country dealing with the prison um, pipeline, the school to prison pipeline, which places um, a lot of black students dis disproportionately on, on that track. Um, and so these are all real issues that affect the black first gen um, experience. Um, and we also know that, you know, uh, many of these students, when they seek higher education for the first time um, are not um, valued in, in many instances in, in the same way. A lot of times they are the only black student in a classroom or the only black student perhaps sometimes at that orientation. Um, and so really not always having the, the support unit, the wraparound services, um, but also seeing other people who look like them as well, um, being represented um, at that particular institution as a completely different level than maybe some other students who might be first gen and white or first gen and, and Latinx. Um, you know, these are, are real issues. I think that a lot of our, our black first gen students have to, to, to face on, on a daily basis. I think, I think the microaggressions must really be a huge factor to such a degree. I think that Brown or Latinx first gen students don't experience this to that same degree. You know what I mean? I would, uh, yeah, I would, I would definitely um, agree. And, you know, now that institutions, I think, are doing a better job of reporting microaggressions, there's been an increase um, across higher education um, in the number of microaggressions that students are, are experience on, on a daily basis, right? And if you're trying to pursue higher education and on top of that, you know, that, that in itself is already difficult um, to try to accomplish um, with everything else going on in your life to also have to deal with microaggressions in the classrooms or microaggressions from people in student affairs. All of that takes a toll. Um, and it actually there's there's scholarship now that shows that it, it doesn't just take a mental toll. It takes a physiological toll now. Right. We know that that racism um, directly impacts, um, you know, uh, an individual's health and their wellness. Um, um, that, that's been demonstrated and, and researched um, really well. So, you know, so I think that this is why the experience of a Black first-gen student is, is really different from some of the other students that both Saranda and I work with. Yeah, and I would add to that, I started to go back to my, my days in my master's programs, and I was, wanted to say Donald Sue, but Daryl Sue, the um, scholar who coined the term microaggressions, like defines them as being those small daily dings. And I, again, think back to before I was in my graduate program, I didn't 
have a word for that. And I think of like critical race theory and kind of one of the underlying components of that is being able to name your pain. And so that's really powerful to be like, okay, like that is what I was experiencing. But, you know, when do students necessarily get taught about a microaggression or what a microaggression is? And um, being able to name that is really powerful for students or being able to be like, well, that feeling is not just in my head or racism, you know, in and of itself. Like sometimes you feel like, okay, am I tripping? And it's like, no, like this is real. My experience is valid that I'm having. And Saranda, um, I wanted to go back to one of the things you said to you about um, navigating the hidden curriculum. Um, is there, could you give us maybe a definition or how you understand that or expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I would define the hidden curriculum as almost like a, a secret playbook <laughs> of sorts um, that encompasses like the things that we sometimes think that students should know, but Oftentimes for first-gen students, you don't know because you don't necessarily have an example or someone who would have told you that. And so um, I, a perfect example would be, you know, just filling out your financial aid on time. Like, what are the implications of that and the importance of it? And I use that example specifically because when I was applying to colleges, I was that person that was, I knew the FAFSA was important and that would be FAFSA or DREAM Act now. But I still waited to the last minute because I was working. I was involved in all these clubs and orgs. I wanted to, you know, be able to get into different schools. And so I did my FAFSA on the last day, but I also didn't have a computer in my home. I didn't have Wi-Fi. So I did it at my friend's house before work. And I finished my FAFSA and just like hopped up from the computer, went to work. And later when I was, you know, looking for my financial aid package, and at that point I had chosen LMU, they said I didn't have one because they never received my FAFSA and I didn't press submit. And so I think that's like a perfect first gen, like hidden curriculum, like, you know, making sure that that's submitted, um, making sure you get the confirmation and, you know, that that process is complete. And in some ways that I see that manifest for our students, it would be, Things like, you know, knowing to go to office hours or the importance of those help-seeking behaviors and how to, you know, break down a syllabi and why that syllabus is so important for each of your classes. Or if you get dropped, like, you know, how do you start that reinstatement process? Or like, what are your rights as students? And, um, you know, just the things that you have to do to kind of get from point A to point B, like you need to see a counselor and, you need to have an education plan and then you need to apply at this point and petition for your degree here. And, you know, once you transfer, you have to pay for that degree and you're like, wait, but I've already paid you. <laughs> so there's just so many, like kind of um, the minutia of just figuring out like how to get through this complex system, but also knowing that, you know, there's going to be struggles at different points, but that's okay. Um, and I think, that is also like part of the hidden curriculum. So oftentimes students feel like I'm the only person that is struggling or is having a hard time. And I think that's even more compounded now with the Rona and you know being at home and not having other people to validate like, oh yeah, like that was hard or like, oh my gosh, I wasn't sure what to do there. And then you're like, okay, it's not just me. Thank you both. Those were really great elements of the 
first gen experience in general. How about some elements of the Black first gen experience in particular that are important for us to know? I well, I think I think some of the things are, that are important is that um, Black students are are not necessarily a homogeneous group. Like they are so different. You know, you might meet some Black first gen students who are you know middle income or higher income, you know, not all black first gen students um, necessarily are students who are coming to higher education um, from a low socioeconomic background. Um, and, you know, they all come with um, different experiences uh, uh, to the community college. Um, you know, I've worked with, with black students sometimes who might not necessarily have both parents in the home. Um, they might have been raised by a, a grandmother um, and they might, you know, they might consider their family to, to be a guardian. Um, and so I think that Black First Gen experience is so different for all of the students that I've worked with um, in the 20 years um, at El Camino College that they, you can't just put them in, in one <laughs> category. Um, they are all so different, I think, when, when they come to the, the community college. Um, and I think the one other thing I'll, I'll say about a key element of the Black First Gen experience is that um, they are they're learning how to navigate um, higher education. So for many of the Black, the Black First Gen students that I work with, they don't know yet that they are First Gen. Um, that is a conversation that we might have at orientation. That's a conversation that we might have um, in a counseling appointment. Um, so really trying to you know, teach them early on um, how to navigate that space, how to gain that college knowledge um, are critical conversations that we have with our Black first-gen students. And Cynthia, you bring up a really great point about students not knowing that they're first-gen. Um, I think for our students, sometimes when they hear first-gen, they might even think first-gen as being in relation to citizenship status or um, first generation like in America. And so there's so many different definitions. And I'm so happy that we included our El Camino first gen definition at the beginning. So we here define first gen as um, someone who's neither parent has a bachelor's degree from a U.S. institution. Um, but some other things that I think are important to, to talk about or discuss as well is that the Black first-gen experience can also be um, further divided out into like the Black first-gen immigrant experience too. So bringing that right back in. So for students who, you know, maybe identify as being African-American, that experience in and of itself is very different too. Um, or Black first-gen students who maybe have a disability. Um, and with that disability, we had a really great discussion earlier today at the Black first-gen symposium about how, and this could be you know, another way of looking at the hidden curriculum as well. Sometimes Black students are either underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed as having a disability. And there's students who have navigated throughout an entire education system, either not knowing that they have a disability or again, being over-diagnosed. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think that there's so many different aspects to every student's identity. Um, and um, one of the things that we sometimes overlook in discussions like this is, you know, we focus so heavily on the challenges or so heavily on 
the obstacles that we forget that, you know, students are bringing their own genius to our institution, right? And they're sharing their expertise and their fluencies with us. So I, I'd really like to hear what you think some of the cultural capital that Black first-gen students possess and that support their college success. And are there any things that we can do, especially teachers, to leverage that cultural capital in the classroom? So when I think of cultural capital, again, I'm a doctoral student, so I'm like Bordeaux, Yosa, <laughs> community cultural wealth. So um, looking at it from Yosa, uh, community cultural wealth framework, which um, was that came to be in 2005. There are six types of capital that she talks about. Um, and I'm not necessarily going to go through all six. I encourage everyone to go through all of them, but um, some that I think are very poignant for first-gen students that they bring with them is like familial capital. So those really strong ties to family and support that they have. So I, again, I was thinking about my experience and I remember being a, a student at LMU, which is a place that, you know, has a lot of privilege, a lot of wealth, and I didn't have that much money in my family. Again, they hadn't gone to college, but they would bring me food. Like my mom's twin sister would come and like, you know, pick up my laundry and do my laundry for me. So they supported me in the ways that they could. Um, but I think that Black First Gen students also bring this really rich network and community with them, which kind of talks or taps into the social capital. And so whether that's their church community, their um, the clubs and orgs that they've been a part of, like they have employed what Yoso calls this navigational capital to get to this point. And so they are the people that are able to figure things out. And I think that is sometimes what um, leads to some first-gen students not necessarily having those help-seeking behaviors. And sometimes it actually makes them seek help even more because they're like, okay, I know I need to ask someone about this. Or um, they're like, but I figured it out up until this point. Um, and then for Black first-gen students who are also having that intersectional immigrant experience um, and even black Christian students that don't have that immigrant experience like they are interpreters in so many ways like I remember my mom like having me help her fill out paperwork and she'd be like Saranda can you read this for me or um, you know I don't understand this and so we are those people that you know, are definitely like helping our families as well like to navigate systems and policies um, I think a good example of, of capital, I remember meeting with a student once and him telling me like, you know, Saranda, I, oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly what he told me, but he was like, you know, I'm, I've never been, um, you know, the type of person that's good at school. Like I'm like a hustler, like I grind and I'm like, okay, yes. Like let's take that mentality and apply it to your academics. So you're going to hustle to like go to tutoring. You're going to like hustle in your planner as you like write down those assignments. And you're going to take all these things that you have done to navigate your community and apply it to your education. So I think just to piggyback on some of the cultural capital, I think that Saranda already talked about and mentioned, I, I do think that 
um, you know, the, that the family, um, is a, a type of capital that black Christian students, um, bring with them. Um, often my conversations with black Christian students, um, and I ask them what's their motivation for pursuing higher education. Um, almost always the number one answer is their family, um, that they, you know, want to, to make their family proud, um, of their accomplishments. Um, you know, they obviously want to be the first in their family um, to, to earn their degree. But I think some other cultural capital that we can tap into and leverage in the classroom is also the, the social capital that Black Christian students um, bring with them. Um, you know, many of our Black Christian students are, you know, involved, they want to be involved, whether that might, that doesn't always mean that they're going to join a club or they're going to join an organization, they're going to take a leadership but they do create their social network. Um, we just had a panel on Tuesday, on Monday, we had a black first gen alumni panel. And one of the uh, panelists said that he had his squad. He had his group of people that he hung out with at the college. And it was those people who uplifted him and kept him on track. And he made sure that some people within that group were, you know, smarter than him <laughs> so that they can kind of, you know, pull him up. Um, and he was able to gain some of the, the skills that they had, whether that was study skills or time management, right? And so I think this is another important aspect of our Black First Gen that they are looking for those social networks, right? And right now being virtual, those are some opportunities, unfortunately, that are lost for our students since we're no longer um, in person. And I think it's really something that the institution needs to look out of how do we still create those those meeting places, those social meeting places so that students can build that that community. Um, so I think this is another type of capital that um, that our students bring um, to the institution um, that, that is really critical. And I would say another kind of capital that black students um, also bring is that a lot of our, our black Christian students are really uh, me, uh, social media savvy. Like they are, you know, utilizing social media, whether that's Instagram or whether that's Twitter. Um, you know, uh, there was a, a good social media study done about a year ago that showed that a lot of uh, black students utilized um, Twitter as like one of their top ways of like communicating with one another. Um, as well as like, you know, some other forms that, that exist out there. And I think that those are important uh, tools that, that we can use um, to try to um, create that community with some of our, our Black first-gen students, like find out like where, where are these spaces at? You know, how are they being created? Um, how are conversations um, existing in, in this online, um, especially right now since we're in this virtual format? Yes. And what you talked about with the social capital, I think, you know, when we were in person, like granted, there's a small percentage of um, Black students on our campus, and that percentage has been declining as well. But, you know, when you're physically on campus, you can at least see those other Black students in your classroom. And so, that's something that is definitely lost in that virtual realm. And I know that EOPNS and also um, the Keys program, like they, and I would say Project Success as well, like they're having like fireside chats and they're doing some things on like a micro level for like, you know, those student populations, but there isn't necessarily something that exists for all students. Um, 
to just kind of like find connections and community. And I always think of like, you know, when they're taking online classes, I know for many students, it's even in my doctoral program, we have like our cameras off. So you don't necessarily know who's who. So it's definitely, I can imagine difficult just trying to make those connections, build that community. You know, these are the kind of things that instructors could really leverage in their classrooms. I mean, if they incorporate um, like a lot of group work, um, you know, you're, you're, you're taking advantage of social capital. If, um, you know, if you get to, if you actually get to know your students, and if you have like um, in the first day of class, like um, this opportunity for people to discuss like what is motivating them to succeed in college, and there you're kind of like getting to know them, but you also like have the opportunity to talk about, you know, familiar capitals, like you're doing this for your family. I've had those conversations with students where like this, you know, getting a college degree would be so beneficial for you and your siblings. Uh, in statistics, you know, uh, um, find the students who are really strong in social capital, linguistic capital. I mean, that would really play out well in statistics. It's a huge, it's a huge factor. Yes. Are there any college policies or practices that pose particular challenges for Black first-gen students? Okay, we can we could literally have spent the whole podcast on just this question alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, Here's where we get the yeah. juicy stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, where do I start? Um, you know, and I think this impacts not just Black Christian students, but I think all students. Um, and and I think that um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna use El Camino because that's where we work at. Um, but you know, other colleges are guilty of, of, of this as well, that our, our practices and our policies really need to be more student friendly and specifically friendly towards first gen students. Right. Um, you know, keep in mind that, that many of our black first gen students, um, you know, mom and dad didn't go to college. So when they're just filling out our admissions application, um, I'm not sure how many of you have ever filled out the El Camino admissions application. Um, The questions that students are asked, it's a universal application, unfortunately, for the entire all 116 colleges. And because of that, there are questions that you know, maybe a community college in the Central Valley needs answered that are not relevant, um, you know, to El Camino College being in an urban center. And so I I think just even something as simple as looking at the admissions application and simplifying that process for many of our students is a barrier to accessing higher education. And let me just give you a really quick example. Uh, Many of our Black first-gen students, when they're applying to El Camino for the first time, Um, They have never had to write down their social security number for anything um, because it's not asked of them when they're in K through 12 education. And if it is, it's their mom and dad who's giving them that information. So the first time, you know, that they're sitting in a classroom with their college counselor or maybe in a workshop, right, deciding that they're going to pursue higher education and specifically a community college they're asked for a social security number and many of them don't always have it. They don't have access to it right away. So they put zero or they leave it blank altogether. And what they don't realize is when they submit that application, even though they got a receipt that they're applying to El Camino College, when they apply for their FAFSA, um, El Camino rejects their FAFSA because um, they never inputted the correct social security number. And so then our black first gen students automatically assume, oh, I didn't get financial aid. I, I was disqualified. It wasn't that they were disqualified. It was that the 
social security number that's on the FAFSA never lined up with the um, admissions application on file. So we really need to be looking at like, you know, how are we explaining um, some of the terminology that comes with going to college for the very first time. And I will say that since we've launched the first gen initiative at El Camino College, we've worked really closely with our outreach department, our out outreach counselors to make sure that first gen definitions are used in all of their presentations and that we normalize what it is to be a first gen student so that we make so that we create an atmosphere where students are comfortable to ask questions and they don't feel embarrassed that they don't know how to fill out this admissions application or how to fill out that FAFSA. So I, I you know, we, we have started to do that work. We have started to see where are the roadblocks for our students? How can we streamline it? And we, we, you know, we started an outreach We've moved over to financial aid now. Uh, one of the things that we're really proud of, um, both Serena, myself, and Daryl, is that we have now been working with admissions and records as well as financial aid to ensure that students who have paperwork missing um, when we get to the drop deadline, that they're not dropped, that we get a list of these students. Because in many cases, they're first-gen students who just forgot to fill out one piece of paper or another and um, you know, shouldn't be dropped for classes because of that. And so we reach out to those students, we educate those students um, to ensure that, that it doesn't happen again. But more importantly, that we don't you know, penalize the student because of a policy that they didn't understand. So I, I really think that we have started this work. We're not there yet. There's other areas um, of the campus that, that need to be looked at closely and need to be a lot friendlier towards black first-gen students, but but all first-gen students in general. Yes. And like, even when I was, you know, reflecting on that question, I couldn't help but think about like at its core, like who was higher education made for? Like who was it meant for? And I acknowledge and recognize that for um, by POC, so that's Black Indigenous People of Color, like colleges and universities was not, were not made with them in mind. And as such, like when I'm like, okay, what policy? But it's like the whole system. And that's kind of gets at the core of being an anti-racist campus is that, you know, policies and practices have racism embedded in them. And even as other by POCs, as someone who participates in this system, we have started to like, we navigate in this realm. So it's really hard to point that out because there's so much like packed in there. Um, but I think one area that I'll highlight um, is with SAP and SAP stands for Satisfactory Academic Progress, which I know I'm like shooting for the stars. This is a federal policy. So that's going to take all heck to change. But <laughs> um, SAP for first-gen students, particularly Black first-gen students who also have a low-income identity, this impacts them like on so many levels because with SAP, you have to maintain satisfactory academic progress to continue to be eligible for financial aid. There's two components. You have to meet the academic side, which is having a 2.0, but you also need to have the progress side, which is completing 67% of the classes that you attempt. And I think, um, you know, for students, sometimes they're very shocked when they lose their financial aid and they have a 4.0 and they're like, I don't understand why I'm doing so well. 
but I'm like, oh, it's the W's. And so something that we've been doing in FYE since 2015 is our financial aid and academic student training, aka FAST, which we're in the, the works of trying to institutionalize this for the entire campus. So teaching students about financial aid policies, like how to maintain satisfactory academic progress, but also what are the things that you need to do? Like, so breaking down that hidden curriculum when you get to college, like what are some of the differences between college and high school and talking about office hours, building relationships with professors, what are the support services that we have? Um, Something else we did in FYE this year with everything being virtual is we Um, My colleague Sal and myself, we developed a presentation on the academic support services that are available virtually for students, just so they had, you know, something like tangible, like, yes, we have this like awesome tutoring hub. And I love um, the, I'm not sure what they're called, but I know the library has students who've made like those little videos. But before that, we're like, okay, how are students going to know, like, you know, which service to go to? And so um, just really trying to think innovatively, creatively, and always just questioning all policies that are in place and trying to think of things from a first-gen lens. And I'm a member of Academic Senate here. And so anytime I'm in our academics and I'm always like causing trouble, but <laughs> it's not that I, I cause trouble just to cause trouble. Although I feel like I'm a professional troublemaker at this point. Um, but I'm really trying to think critically about things from a student perspective and particularly, you know, that first gen student perspective and how they are experiencing this policy. If I, if I can add to that in mathematics, I mean, before AB 705, we had those um, placement tests you know, which, um, which studies had shown that are not very accurate at predicting student success in college. Um, no more accurate than the SAT, really. Uh, you know, but, but these are policies that, you know, that were placing a large number of students into the lowest levels of remediation, making it forever, making it extremely difficult for, for, for black and brown students to complete a transfer-level college course. I mean, I, I, one stat I remember was 89% of students placed at the lowest levels were black and brown. Yep. Um, yeah, and, you know, taking their time, they're exhausting their financial aid just to get to, you know, a transfer-level math course. But then, you know, beyond that policy, but, you know, some of the practices and instruction, like in mathematics, we have a lot of deficit mind-thinking amongst instructors it's one very recent, within this, a few months ago, it was a math department reading where somebody said that I'm a weeder. I like to weed my students out. So right there, I mean, they're, they're flatly just stating that they are a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And when you think about this idea, like, you know, most math instructors, large majority, uh, according to Norton Grubb from Berkeley, are lecturers. And there's been some um, discussion about whether you know, the straight up traditional lecture is racist because, you know, it only appeals to certain types of learners and those are the learners with privilege. And if you think about it right now during COVID, you know, if we're grading right now, we're grading for privilege. I'm sorry, I had to preach. Yeah, I think, and I, I think in the English department and every department, you know, especially before AB 705, that was one of the big systemic barriers for first-gen students in particular. They didn't know that they could 
apply to retake the test. They didn't know that they could see if they could get an equivalent C exam. Like in English, you had a thing where you could actually demonstrate that you had some, that your writing skills were at a certain level to skip some of those remedial courses. Not that they should have to, but there was an option. But when you are coming to college for the first time and you don't have a close friend, family member, et cetera, who has already done it, you just don't necessarily know your rights. And something that always comes to mind is something I have noticed, and this is obviously not something that applies to every individual, but it, but it's something I have noticed with some of my uh, Black students, especially my Black male students, is that they are very uncertain as to whether they can trust me in a conversation. I think because this was this was told to me by by more than one Black male student is that they felt like when they asked a question, teachers thought that they were being rude or something. Or if they wanted to understand a concept, they had been punished in the past for for, ask, for asking questions. I mean, just things that, that blew my mind. Um, and I, I worry that that's, you know, one of the legacies of all this systemic racism, which is so hard to pin down because it's so big and so multifaceted that students are facing a thousand small and large little obstacles, little traumas, big traumas that build up and create things like, you know, I'm not going to maybe approach my, my teacher, especially like my white male teacher, because I don't trust that they're going to actually care about my success and who can blame them, you know? With the history now, of course, that's not always true for every person, but but I have noticed that as as a little bit of a trend, and it also actually magically leads me to my next question, um, which is: Do you have suggestions about how high schools can better prepare um, first gen students for success in college? So many things. Um, I would first say, you know, again, starting to get some of that terminology. So talking about being first gen. So whether that's professors or principals, like, you know, starting conversations, like, you know, I'm first gen. And I find that at least when I start conversations that way, students are more likely to disclose like, Hey, like, you know, I'm first gen too. And again, they, it takes away this idea of like that your experience is something that is, you know, in a silo. Um, I would say, talking about like you know what are things that you need to do to be a successful college student like what's going to be different in college than it is in high school and I I know you know just being an FYE like every year we talk to students about like you know the rigor that they're going to experience at El Camino and I went to Gardena High School, which was really close by. And I remember at Gardena, we'd say, oh, like, you know, El Camino, that's going to be high school 2.0. And students are usually pretty shocked with like the amount of work that they need to do. And they're like, oh my goodness, like, what is this? I think kind of setting that expectation early that like, you know, community college is real college and that the community college experience is meaningful and valuable um, I know, at least in my own experience, community college was not something that was like pushed towards me as an idea. And so I thought, like, hey, okay, I have to go to a four year. And that was like the track that I was on, quote unquote. Um, but I didn't even know that things like virtue experience existed or 
what the fee waiver was because I was dropping so much cash going to LMU. So I always look at, you know, my first year students and I'm like, wow, you guys are so lucky that you're starting this experience here at Elko. Like you're saving money, you're getting a first class education. Um, And so I think kind of changing, reframing, you know, how we think of community colleges, how we talk about community colleges as an option and a viable option for all students and not tracking quote unquote certain students be like, okay, you're going to go to community college. You're not. And I always think of it from perspective too, that we get a lot of reverse transfers. So I think those students have a double shock because there is like a little bit of shame sometimes that they carry for coming to a community college after being at a four year for whatever reason. And so And then they also don't necessarily know how to navigate the community college either, what they should be taking. And so I think that, again, putting community college is an option for all students because many students, whether they, you know, go directly to the four-year complete and then maybe decide to do a pre-professional program, need to come to a community college to take some prereqs or that student that reverse transfers or, you know, maybe ends up at a community college later in life just has those like basic principles of navigating systems. Um, And I would say particularly for Black Christian students, like, again, learning terminology like microaggressions and being able to, you know, name that pain, like if you do experience those things and how to advocate for yourself as a student. And I think particularly for maybe those Black Christian students who have a disability or a learning difference, um, one of the biggest shifts when they come to college is like before they had a 504 plan in the IEP where there were meetings and maybe their guardians or parents were involved and there was like a teacher and they were kind of being told what to do when they get to college and they really have to seek out that support and say, hey, I self-identify and I want to to get the benefits of this. But I think, again, sometimes students may have a negative experience in high school and not want to seek that service in college. And so, you know, something that I do is I try to reframe that. I'm like, yes, like, let me tell you about the SRC, like and all the dope folks over there that can help you to get the best grades possible. Like you want to get the best grades possible, right? Like, why would you sell yourself short? Like, let's get all the support necessary. And there's not a stigma here because it's like, yo, like, do you boo? Like, <laughs> like we're all like out here trying to function. So I think those are just like a couple things that come to mind. Um, in terms of how high schools can do a better job, I, I'm actually right now really liking some of the changes that I'm seeing happening um, in high schools, um, at least definitely in, in, in this area. Um, you know, we're now at a point where you know, even high schools have um, removed a lot of these gatekeeper courses or access to classes. Um, So now students, um, you know, high schools are imposing new policies where everyone has access to AP um, uh, courses. You no longer have to get approved by your high school counselor or your high school principal. Um, We're seeing that um, around all of the high schools that um, you know, feed into El Camino College. And, you know, I, I talked to 
a lot of high school counselors as well as high school teachers um, you know, on, on a weekly basis because I run a first year experience program. So that's a shift. You know, that has that was not the case when I was hired at El Camino 20 years ago. Um, so I think that that is definitely a step in the right direction to allow our to allow high school students to go right into college level classes, honors courses as well as AP courses. Um, second, I think something else that high school students, uh, the high schools can be doing for uh, first gen is to, you know, do what we did at El Camino, um, create a campaign around first gen students, um, celebrate them um, in, in that high school experience, um, have orientations early on where they're teaching students about the first gen um, experience, but also create campaigns, right? One of the things we did at El Camino was we created t-shirts, we created bags, we created all kinds of images that students around campus could see that they could wear. So really celebrating first-gen students, even at the high school level, um, is key. And then I would say something else that um, high schools can do is professional development. You know, many high school teachers um, are not trained themselves on how to work with first-gen students. So really giving them the professional development where they learn about the hidden curriculum, where they learn about the definition about what it means to be a, a, a first-gen um, student. But, you know, don't forget that even a lot of our high school teachers, our college professors, they were they were also first-gen grads, right? First-gen professionals, right? So so there's this whole layer of first-gen that, that you experience um, all the way into your professional career. So I do think that professional development is also key. Um, to some of our, our high school teachers and that they can infuse some of that into their curriculum, right? One of the things we did here at El Camino is when we were celebrating um, first gen for the very first time, we asked faculty at El Camino, share your first gen story today. You know, tell your students about what your own journey was like, right? So it's it's really powerful for first-gen students to also be able to hear those stories from their professors, um, especially if they were first-gen gen as well. Um, so I think that, that there's a lot that can be done um, in high schools. I think high schools are, are, are really trying right now to create that, that space for college access, to support students um, into higher education. And I, I've been really actually happy with some of the partnerships that we've been seeing um, develop um, and strengthen in, in the last five years. Well, um, this is your opportunity to like give advice to the hundreds of instructors who are listening to us. Okay, dozens. A rabid <laughs> fan base, yeah. <laughs> okay, dozens. Okay, okay, three. Um, what can the college or um, what can the college or instructors do to support Black first-gen students? Okay, so I think there's a couple of things that professors can do, um, and I think it starts with relationship building. Um, relationship building is really key to success of Black first-gen students. Um, you know, getting to know your students um, and not just, you know, yes, Black students want you to teach the curriculum as well, right? Um, but they also want to know a little bit about their professor, right? Um, they want to have those types of, of opportunities, um, I think, on, on day one. 
So I think that 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 is is something so simple. <laughs> it's such a simple strategy, right? Um, and it's not easy for all professors, right, um, to really kind of create that relationship building. But community is, is really important, especially for community college students, because our students are, are commuters, right? They're not residential students. And so when you're a commuter student, you're spending the majority of your time in the classroom with your professors. Um, and so the more relationship building, the more you can create that, that learning community environment um, for your students and also create those social environments where they're able to connect with three or four other people within the classroom um, is really important. And sometimes just, you know, on, I, I think the professors can, can just talk about like intersectionality. It doesn't matter what subject you're teaching, right? You might have someone who is black first gen, but they are also a returning parent, right? or they're a single father, or they're a single mother, and they might meet somebody else in the classroom who has this, the, that same intersectionality. And those two students might end up connecting as a result of the opportunity um, that you provided. Um, so I, I, I think that that is really important. I think something else that's important is to often consider that, you know, for many Black first-gen students, that they have not always had positive experiences in their K-2 K through 12, um, you know, upbringing. And so I think when Chris was talking about um, having a student letting him know that he didn't know if he could really trust him or, or, you know, whether or not he felt comfortable to trust him, that is a real thing, right? A lot of our students experience trauma um, just in the K through 12 spaces. And I'm not even talking about the trauma that students might necessarily experience within their own family. Um, and so it's not always going to be easy to approach a faculty member. Um, you know, they might approach someone else first before they approach you. Um, so I, again, that goes back to that relationship building and anything that the professor is willing to share about themselves and their own experiences, right? I think students appreciate knowing that you're not perfect as well, right? You didn't, you maybe didn't have the perfect uh, higher education experience yourself and maybe um, made some mistakes um, along the way to really humanize, um, you know, who you are um, in the classroom. Because a, a lot of times for first-gen students and Black first-gen students, a professor can be really intimidating. Um, and so they're not always comfortable coming to you when they run into trouble. Um, and sometimes our students are, are quick to exit and maybe giving some tangible strategies to our Black first-gen students if, hey, if this happens, like here's some alternatives that you can try. You know, if you don't do well in your first exam, here, here's a plan of action that you can do. Come see me in my office or send me an email. Let's have a chat. Let's go on to Zoom. Like let's connect in some kind of way, right? I think it's important for professors to, to kind of outline that for our, our Black first-gen students and, and let them know that, that you're going to be there for them. Yes. And for our, you know, Black Christian students, like knowing that there are other folks who have a first-gen experience, like that's really powerful. That, again, is that rapport building, relationship building, connection building. And we know that not all faculty are first-gen, but even just saying something as simple as like, you know, I'm a first-gen ally and that I have, you know, dedicated myself to learning about the first gen experience. And that's really 
important and valuable to me. And that can be affirming. Um, I know that our students are getting so many emails. So um, using other mediums of communication. So like Google Voice, where you can send text messages. Um, there is an anonymous quote. I don't know who said this, but students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think that is so profound because through building that relationship, students will keep coming back. They're like, okay, let me, you know, I'm getting something from this, even if it's challenging or difficult and them feeling like they could come to you if there is something going on. Um, there, at least at LMU, there was this Jesuit philosophy. It's um, in Latin called cura personalis, which is care of the whole person. And in my first semester, like I struggled a lot, but I felt very cared for. And that's what also helped me to persist like throughout, you know, having a very difficult semester. And that's something I share with students. Like, you know, I didn't pass a class before. I didn't pass stats on my first try. And that's okay because you're not defined by any one class or any one grade, like you can still go on to do great things. And so sometimes students feel very defined by, by certain things. Um, I think also faculty being able to have sometimes uncomfortable conversations in classes. So um, this can be mitigated by maybe setting some classroom norms in the beginning, um, making sure that classrooms are a safe space because sometimes there are things that other students may say or bring up that you know could be very damaging and harmful to someone in that space. Um, I think a good example, I remember I was a political science major and so as an undergrad, we were having these conversations about um, you know, welfare and three strikes laws. And I remember the classroom having like a very negative conversation and I didn't want to speak up and say, oh, my mom was on welfare and my dad's in prison for three strikes. I just felt so little in that moment. And I didn't feel empowered to be like, no, like, you know, these are not bad people. They're not all welfare queens and not everyone in prison is awful. Um, so I think, you know, creating that space where students can have conversations, but also if there is something that's being said, like being able to call in that student um, instead of calling them out and helping that person to learn, like, why is that <laughs> not necessarily, you know, acceptable in the space to say that or how that could be offensive. And also, I think as professors or faculty acknowledging that you'll make mistakes too, because I think we we're all learning. One of my former master's professors would say like, we're all recovering racists. <laughs> and that also counts for, for POCs, even though technically people of color cannot be racist, we could just be prejudiced, but we're all recovering racists in the sense that we've grown up in this system that we are operating within that is bound by racism. Um, I also think about Paulo Ferreira and like the ideology that we are co-creators of education. And so telling students like, we're gonna learn from each other. Like, yes, I am teacher, but I'm gonna learn from you as well. Like your contributions are important like to this space. Um, and then I would say last, just addressing what's going on. And 
I I remember and because similar to our students, you know, in the spring, our semester went online, even for my doctoral program. And in the summer, you know, after George Floyd, after Breonna Taylor, after the incident at Central Park and like the Black Lives Matter movement, I remember being in a class and I was like, okay, we're definitely going to talk about this. And we were going to do an icebreaker of like, what's your favorite ice cream? And I was just like, I was like, no, like (laughs) we have to talk about what's happening right now. And so we like paused the the introductions and icebreakers to really talk about like, you know, what are you doing at your campus to support Black students? And I think having those conversations, whether it's the election right now where students are stressed, like they're, they're worried, they're afraid. Um, and so I think those are, are really important to kind of like to be human <laughs> and like acknowledge like, you know, there's like some crazy, I don't know if I say, say shit, but there's some crazy shit going on right now. And that, you know, impacts our students experience. Like they're worried about COVID, but they're also maybe working. They're maybe, you know, putting themselves at risk every day they're going outside, or maybe they are breadwinner for their family. Um, and I think, you know, just each black student and black version student who shows up on our campus, like that in and of itself is an act of resistance. It's an act of their resistance capital. So just the fact that they're there is like, oh my gosh, I just get so excited. Cause I'm like, okay, like you've made it to the space. Like, how do we keep you? Like, how do we continue to cultivate and like help you grow and help you to reach your goals in you know, whatever way that we can. I love that phrase. We are all recovering racists. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that down. I wrote that down. Um, you know, I have a lot of conversations with STEM instructors. And, and there's this idea, this mentality, this the mindset that, uh, you know, getting to know our students is, you know, it's fluff time. It's just fluff. It's not academic time. Which is so wrong on so many levels. Right? And I think like most of... The work I'm doing isn't even about math. It's just kind of helping students believe that they can do the math. You know, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that empowerment that you talked about, which isn't so much about the mastery of the content. I mean, that's part of it, sure, of course. But it's also more a matter of, of belief. It's also a matter of like, the feeling that they belong in these spaces and that they can grow into, you know, these, these spaces where you have greater mastery of the content. And I think that's, that's really hard to get, you know, people, instructors, I think especially STEM instructors to, to, to embrace. It's, it's just a huge challenge because there's that, there's that traditional mindset. It's just just like, you know, the way it's been, you know, we must, we must cover all the content, which is really the worst thing for, for knowledge. My mentor, the, the, the late David Gosha, used to always say that covering the entire content has to do with being self-righteous in, in your ego. And really, your job was always to uncover the material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially now when the content is prescribed to instructors via the publishers in which you know, the publishing companies are just kind of really trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator. They want to just throw everything, the kitchen sink, into their textbooks to, to appeal to everyone, which really they're really appealing to no one. 
But you know, let me just let me just touch on what you said, Art, about STEM instructors, right? You know, and and, and this is something that we've tackled with this first gen initiative at El Camino because we we have partnered up with some um, STEM professors because you know, first of all, Black students in particular are underrepresented in, in the STEM fields, and and we're aware of that, and so are women, um, and so we have hosted several events with them. Um, and identified uh, first-gen faculty within the STEM to come and talk about their own experiences and, and their own journey and, and navigating, you know, STEM, right? Um, and it has been really beneficial and, and, and we've invited even STEM faculty who are not first-gen to some of these events to kind of create this conversation. So yes, they, you know, it, it's difficult to change a mindset, um, but there are things that you can be, that we can do as an institution to continue those conversations so that they, the faculty can see the value um, that our first-gen STEM students um, bring to the college, bring to the institution, bring to the conversation as well. But if we're not creating those spaces for them to come together and talk with one another, um, you know, then I think we're just as much to blame. <laughs> um, we have to create those spaces for them to, to be in the same room, um, to talk to one another, because when they do those things, they, they realize that, hey, you know, these these are some great group of <laughs> of. of Black first-gen STEM students that we now want to kind of support, and their pet pedagogy starts to change as a result of it. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with co-oping the word rigor, so that it's not a matter of like failing everyone, but it's more a matter of like the, the depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I have one more thing I wanted to add. And this was something that I learned from my philosophy professor, my like first semester of college. And he granted we are in a virtual space. So humor me. He <laughs> he made us all get up and exchange numbers with three people in the class so that you had almost like a little like support pod. So like if you missed a class, like you had someone you could text or if you needed to try to do a study group, like you had some people that you could look to. And that's something that I have encouraged my students to do like in this virtual realm. Cause I'll, I'll ask them like, you know, do you, do you know people in your class? They're like, no, I, you know, I'm shy. I haven't talked to anyone yet. I'm like, okay, do you have synchronous classes or asynchronous? And if it's synchronous, I tell them like, you know, put in the chat, like say, Hey, like who wants to get together to do a virtual study group or a virtual, like, you know, homework hangout session. Um, and then if it's asynchronous, like post it up in a discussion board, because you're not the only person, you know, looking for those connections. And I think, you know, part of the college experience, of course, like, you know, what you're learning, but I also really remember the relationships that I built. And I think the peer to peer relationships are really valuable and meaningful. And again, we're talking about social capital help students persist. And so if that's not happening, we are like almost like taking away a layer of support and encouragement for students. So encouraging, like helping to foster, facilitate that as professors, um, I think, and faculty, that could be really valuable for students. I want to just add one thing to that. Oh, absolutely. Because I think it's also important to name it, right? And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I haven't seen any programming at El Camino 
in a lot. And since I've been there, maybe you can create art. You, you haven't been there as long as I have, but you know, we hosted a black first gen week, <laughs> black first generation week at El Camino. I, I haven't seen any kind of programming like that at El Camino um, in maybe never, <laughs> you know, that, the, I mean, there's been programming and I'm not talking about the programming that we do, right, for African-American month, right? Because there's, they do an amazing job and they put on a ton of programming. But I think being really intentional about the Black first-gen experience, and, and it's not a one-time thing. It is something that is going to be ongoing in collaboration with the Men of Color, um, with the first-gen task force, as well as the, the Black um, Employees Network. Um, is is a shift, you know, and and it I, I think like it, it it announces to the entire campus community that these are going to be ongoing conversations that are critical to our success as a college as an institution for the community as well. Um, we have seen a dip, a decline in the amount of Black students that are choosing to come to El Camino College, and that's something that we want to change. Um, we don't see black students represented um, like they should be with our promise program um, at El Camino College. Um, and, and there's no reason for that. So we really want to examine that and we want to change that and make sure that more black students are taking advantage of that because that is free college, right? They That's basically getting their education financed. Um, and that is a, a critical you know, uh, function for, for black students to, to be able to complete their degree or transfer whatever it is that they want to do. So, I mean, I just wanted to, to add that layer to it. Um, because, um, I do think it's important to, to be very intentional with our programming and, and, you know, kind of put it out there for the whole campus community that this is where we're headed. Yes. And I would add that like there are some support programs that are specifically designed for first-gen students, um, students who come from underrepresented backgrounds. So like EOP and S, I think about Project Success, which focuses on the Black students and the KEYS program as well. Um, additionally, like through the African-American Employees Network, we are also planning to put on an event um, this month for all Black students on campus. And so I think, you know, continuing to see um, things like this. So again, it's not just one week or um, it's not just Black History Month. Um, black students should be celebrated all the time. We should be really like at the core of conversations around equity as we're looking at what are those equity gaps and we know what they are, but it's like, okay, what are we going to to do to create these spaces where students can be successful, feel connected, um, and feel cared for. Are there any resources you can recommend for people who might want to learn more about first-gen experiences, specifically Black first-gen experiences, or how to support uh, Black first-gen students? So yes, there's a couple of things that I think we can recommend to the entire campus community. Um, first and foremost, um, you know, I, I would say uh, whether you're a faculty member, staff member, administrator, manager, whatever, decide what level of involvement you want to be involved. Right. So, for example, 
Um, we have a first gen task force at, at our campus. If you want to play an active role in creating some of the programming, changing some of the policies, right? Celebrating first gen students, consider being a member of our first gen task force. You can reach out to me or you can reach out to Saranda. Uh, two, um, we put on professional development for, you know, around topics of first gen all academic year. So look out for that in Cornerstone for spring of 2021. We also have a first gen website that faculty can um, access. And if they just type in first gen in the search engine, our website comes up. There's also a list of first gen resources that faculty have accessed um, um, through there that could give them some additional reading materials around the hidden curriculum, you know, around being first in your family to go to college. Um, I would also recommend that, um, you know, many folks don't know this, um, is, and that's that El Camino is considered a first forward institution. So because of the work that we have started at El Camino, we were the only community college that was selected from NASPA um, to be part of their first forward advisory institution. Um, for the work that we've done. And so because of that, um, we have access to a lot of the resources that come out of the Center for First Generation Success. And the center has now created a Black First Generation Success um, website, as well as a list of speakers. Um, Dr. Latanya Malzries, who was our speaker today, uh, she is one of those speakers that NASPA is working with as a national expert. So I think if, if faculty want to get additional resources, specifically around the Black First Gen experience, I would um, send them to the Center for First Generation Success. There is a whole website there that's dedicated just to the Black um, First Gen experience. So those are some ways that I think people can get additional resources, but not just get, getting resources, also get involved, right? Like you know, maybe you come to one task force meeting or maybe you become a member. Um, so there's a, a lot of ways to get involved. I would say in addition to those great resources that Cynthia shared, um, you can also look to um, engage in um, virtual and social media spaces. Um, Dr. Latanya Smile, she has an Instagram handle, First Gen and Juice that posts um, first gen <laughs> pop culture. And so if you want to have some cool references in your classes, they'll be like, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, follow that handle. Um, there is the Empowering First Generation College Student Facebook group, which is for um, individuals who identify as being first gen, but also those who identify as being advocates for first gen. So whether you are first gen or you're a first gen ally, like this space is fire like they're always like people are posting different things that they're doing on their campuses so you're seeing like best practices you're seeing articles you're like there's current first-gen students who are part of this group whether they're undergrad or graduate or doctoral students um there'll be questions that'll be posed you'll get to see like you know what our students experiencing right now and what our first-gen professionals experiencing. So it's, you know, very helpful for me. Um, if you are first gen and maybe you're in a doctoral program like me, or you're thinking about a doctoral program, first gen docs, um, you can follow them on Twitter or Instagram. Um, and then again, going back to 
that community cultural framework that we talked about with those six forms of capital, looking into um, Yoso or even like critical race theory, I think is really powerful as well. Yeah, and also obviously look at the, the work of Dr. Luke Wood out of San Diego State, Tyrone Howard out of UCLA, um, Ernest Morrell, who's at Notre, Notre Dame. Um, there's a lot of great scholars out there doing some amazing work. And a lot of those scholars you can access through the Center for First Generation Success. Oh, there's also an institute right now. It's on pause because of COVID. But uh, the University of South Carolina has a first gen institute um, for an entire week that takes place um, in the month of June. Uh, my, I've attended, Saranda's attended, Daryl's attended as well. Colleges can send a team there. Um, they are still going to have it next year, but it, uh, more than likely it will be virtual. But we can send out that information if anybody um, is interested. 